those cases that we took up then were a long haul in terms of witness preparation and uh, yeah the entire case all the cases that we did were uh, were were uh, took a lot of time and took a lot of uh, effort uh, so that was at one level at uh, second level we started again looking at the entitlements that were being announced and the gaps in that for example because people were people's bodies were burnt the faces were not recognizable uh, now uh, how do you uh, how do you get a death certificate that was nupur sinha speaking about some of her work in the aftermath of the 2002 gujarat riots her organization the center for social justice provided representation to some of the victims of the naroda patiya massacre when 97 muslims were killed by a mob of approximately 5000 people on the 28th of february more than 10 years later the special court set up to try the case convicted 32 of those people and acquitted 29 among those convicted were a former cabinet minister and a prominent leader of the bajrang dal a hindu nationalist organization another historic legal struggle to which the center for social justice provided legal services was that of bilkis banu who was one of the few rape survivors of these riots to come forward and seek justice even though the gujarat police at first dismissed her allegations she ultimately received a modicum of justice when in 2008 a mumbai court convicted perhaps for the first time in independent india those alleged to have committed rape during communal violence in 2019 the supreme court ordered the gujarat government to pay bilkis banu 50 lakh rupees as compensation along with a government job and housing in the area of her choice these were some of the most high profile cases that the center for social justice has been part of but ever since i first heard of csj i have felt that their model of intervention deserved at least as much attention as their work in these high profile cases an entire cadre of lawyers and paralegals who provided their legal services at the lowest levels of the judiciary and the state administration who are these lawyers and paralegals what is the work that they do day in and day out how do they organize their work how are they trained and mentored today we are going to learn a little more about this model from nupur sinha the executive director and a founding member of the center for social justice Welcome to the Nagrik podcast. My name is Aju John and here you can learn from conversations about civic participation. In this podcast, I will learn along with you from the people who have tried to bring about meaningful change. Nagrik podcasts are brought to you by Nagrik Open Civic Learning. We promote open educational resources for civic participation so that more people can learn to assume active roles in their societies. Right now, at www.nagriklearning.com you can find a great course on community rights and forest governance created by Oxfam India in association with the Center for Policy Research learn about the historical economic political and social factors driving land use in India's forests the legal framework for the governance of resources and rights in forests the negotiation of conflicting claims over land use and the practical tools that communities can use to protect and advance their interests in these conflicts visit nagriklearning.com that is n a g r i k learning.com in this episode of the nagrik podcast we are going to learn from nupur sinha about the work that goes into using the justice system to fight for the rights of marginalized people through a network of grassroots lawyers and paralegals I spoke to her in the second week of May 2020 when large parts of India were still under lockdown. How did this network respond to the horrors unleashed by the pandemic and the government's response to it? Uh so basically uh, Center for Social Justice has offices in three states Gujarat, Jharkhand, uh, Chhattisgarh and we have a very strong volunteer base. uh we have been tracking uh, the issues not just related to migrants which has now become about 60 70% of our work but also in terms of how the lockdown is impacting different communities uh we have uh, two very clear thematic focus one is our intervention in the coastal belt 
and the second one is our intervention in the adivasi belt and third is our other offices which are all of us are uh, now fully fully into migrant management uh when the lockdown was announced the first thing that we did is a very quick um, rapid survey uh looking at uh, what are the specific issues in the coastal area what are the specific issues in the adivasi areas what are the generic issues that uh, we are coming across and what is happening to the migrants um that was a 3 day 4 day process where we because we could not move about we just connected with our volunteer base and started asking questions of what is happening um as um as one by one announcements kept coming we started also looking at uh, that that what is the readiness of the district to implement that particular announcement uh, we linked up with avaz day and uh, did voice messagings where uh, technical uh, government regulations were translated into simple uh, messages uh, for wider circulations we made tiktok videos we made uh, um uh, audio visual uh, material for spreading information on various entitlements that is there and uh, almost on a 24 hour basis we were reporting uh, what is it that the government needs to look at so for example in the adivasi area what are the needs that are emerging in the coastal area what are the needs that are emerging and what are the notifications not addressing and therefore what instructions need to be given to the district administration um so, so we did that for almost i think 10 days where every 24 hours then it became 48 hours and then it became any significant interval where we were saying um, specific needs of different areas community wise location wise uh, and what is it that needs addressing at the district level what is it that needs addressing at the uh, state level um and constantly raising it with the authorities so first 3 4 days uh, just to give you an example first 3 4 days um it took us to just get managed to get the number of the uh, state legal services authorities uh now that is a system which is supposed to implement something called the disaster management victim uh, support scheme now and there are multiple responsibilities that the slsa and the dlsa district legal services authorities supposed to play uh now i uh, wrote to the uh, uh, to the member secretary saying that we have not been able to contact any of your uh, dlss because the numbers are not working and um, so he was very upset by whatever why he didn't like my tone etc etc anyway uh, but he shared with us the whatsapp numbers of um, of all those people uh through informal sources again uh, we managed to get the list of numbers of mamladdars of all the talukas so these became two key uh, actors that we were constantly um, dealing with uh it began as usual with informing the authorities what their role is what the entitlement is etc etc and so many times we had dlsa secretary saying lekin aap humse kyu baat kar rahe hain isme hamari kya bhumika hai and then we had to say ki this is what you are supposed to do and then after that once they understood thankfully this particular time people have been more uh, responsive than than say at the time of the riots or the floods uh, i think there's an overall national uh, furor in wanting to make things better whatever but we've had better experiences than uh, past so this was uh, one track that we were on the second track that we were on is that as and when the entitlements were announced we would uh, try and ensure that people get that those entitlements so uh, for example if the jandhan yojana has been announced then we know because we work in the field we already know that these are the issues which will come uh, either the accounts would be frozen because people have not uh, transacted or there would be an aadhar failure or there would be a spelling mistake so we started uh, uh, and then there would be distance because people would have to walk uh, am- am- amongst uh, uh, the lockdown amidst the lockdown people would ha- would have to walk uh, 10 kilometers 12 kilometers uh, just to get those 500 rupees so we started saying why don't you set up distribution camps at the village instead of people having to uh, walk uh, also set up service camps where you are dealing with all these account related issues so that people are able to access the money that they can uh, access so this was at one level the second was we tracked the uh track the chain the supply chain so in the coastal areas what is happening to the to the fish what is happening to the mandis what is happening to the crops and then started demanding uh 
those kind of relaxations in the way the lockdown was being uh, implemented and uh, facilitating that so that was the other thing that we did migrant tracking was a very very big uh, thing and it continues to consume us we are all of us are spending maybe a lot of time we are spending in just pure migrant tracking the first set of phone calls from people saying hum ghar pahunch gaye has started coming since last um, two days so it's been almost those many days that we have been into migrant management so that's yeah that's largely what we've been doing in the in the whole uh, lockdown thing so are we naturally compassionate beings who automatically feel the plight of india's migrant workers or does such compassion come from education and socialization this question has always interested me about cause lawyering or as it is sometimes known public interest lawyering or social lawyering where did these legal professionals get their compassionate attitude towards the law i was like yeah basically i come from a family of uh, uh forgies and uh, freedom fighters so that has had an influence on how i look at life and how i look at my relationship with this country and uh, it's the kind of literature the kind of uh, exposure that i have had during college all those things have uh, shaped the way i think or well, shaped the way uh, i decided what i want to do in life and uh, an additional thing was that there was a group called smile which used to work with professional uh, students uh, and motivating them to take up uh, social justice work so i was a pass my student from my third year onwards and that uh, had a significant impact on on me so that was uh, there and uh, the college of course had a, i went to nls the college of course had a lot of people uh, who who were who were into uh, development work or rights based work who were constantly uh, on the campus so uh, interactions with them and easy access to them was also another uh factor uh, that was very important and uh, after that i got into center for social justice and uh, yeah that's been the journey uh, so um being being able to understand what were these you know uh formative books that you were reading any particular people you would like to credit for having influenced you come in this particular direction what cooler books will be very difficult to identify but i was i was uh, into a lot of literature both english and hindi so starting from premchand ka godan uh, to um, to multiple other uh, to kafka i don't know one particular author as such but a uh, uh, lot of uh, reading that i did uh, was challenging uh, the social norms so for example if you look at mrityunjay which is on the life of karn or and uh, doordarshan was uh, was was in its golden era it was coming up with a lot of very good uh, stuff that was there um so yeah i think it's just uh, just orientation to that and uh, the college campus was full of many uh, people we had nandita aksar who taught me we had uh, yeah the whole atmosphere was such that you sort of uh, got dragged into not that i knew that you were uh, that you felt comfortable being uh, who you are and thinking uh, what you are thinking let's come to the center for social justice uh, mm-hmm. can you give a brief um, history of when it was formed um, you know who was the who were the you know the, the people who had spearheaded it before you um so i would say uh, janvikas is an organization whose core uh, objective is to set up uh, um set up set up leadership develop leadership set up new organizations so center for social justice was started as a as a jan vikas initiative and um, when we started uh, so gagan sethi gagan was uh, heading jan vikas then and uh, uh, that's so jan vikas uh, is the organization which incubated uh, center for social justice initially and um, Uh, I've been there right from beginning, so I've been very much part and parcel of how the organization has grown and uh, shaped up. Uh, and I've worked very uh, closely, uh, and have been ben- been mentored very 
deeply by Gagan, so that uh, that is very much uh, there. And uh, Center for Social Justice was established in ninety four. I would say it was already there when I joined. Uh, yeah, must be six months earlier, piece or something like that. So, uh, can you talk about that philosophy a little more? Why do you believe uh, that uh, law is an appropriate uh, method of bringing about change? As I told you in the beginning, also one has one has really started questioning that now. But anyway, the struggle has to go on. Uh, no, but it comes from the fact that that's what I have studied. That's the only thing I know, and. Um, uh yeah and uh, our work involves multiple other things law is the core and we believe that uh, using law for social change is the core strength of center for social justice i think there's a big gap and lacuna uh, that uh, we have where a lot of social organizations and social movements don't have adequate backing of lawyers and uh, uh the struggle really suffers because of that and i think csj fills in that gap uh, to some extent uh, also when 94 uh, when we had started that time i think grassroots based law law support groups were very rare people were at supreme court and high court largely uh, largely individual lawyers who were uh, there but an institutionalized intervention which is looking at the grassroots uh i think there was a very big gap so this became the arena in which we started exploring yeah. so the the main strategy for which uh, center for social justice is known is for having this large network of lawyers and paralegals all across the country can you tell me the thinking behind this particular strategy and how you went about uh, implementing this strategy how did you start developing this network and how did you grow it uh so as i said the genesis of csj was in the fact that there is a lacuna when it comes to legal support and uh, that's the that's the arena that we were exploring and what needs to be done and what can be done and the first i think first program that we did was to do a, a training uh, of different organizations into basic laws and uh, these women then went back to their respective areas and because they were a little more aware on simple things like police procedure or panchayat procedure or land laws uh, they started being respected in their own village for that knowledge but then also what became important is that their knowledge could take them up to a level and then beyond that uh, they needed the support of a lawyer so two tracks in the organization started one was strengthening um, paralegal as a separate cadre and then second was to set up a uh network of grassroots lawyers and uh, we realize we don't want uh we don't want no means that our focus is not so much on starry eyed uh elite college lawyers but on what we call desi lawyers desi lawyers meaning people who are from the community who studied in the vernacular and uh, now we have in csj we have that divide very blurred so a lot of our paralegals who were class 10th passed have finished their law and are practicing we take up law students as paralegals and groom them to become become lawyers so in csj what we say is a good social justice lawyer essentially has to be a very good paralegal uh, but these are the two core programs which form the basis on which all our interventions rest so give us an idea about uh, you know uh, the state of the network right now how many lawyers are there how many uh, paralegals are there in how many states um so if i just talk of the present uh, lockdown response we are in uh, we are in uh, three states that is uh, jharkhand chatisgarh and gujarat uh, we have a team of about 60 lawyers and paralegals who are re- our regular uh, staff and uh, we have about 100 volunteer paralegals who are part of the team so this is for the uh, moment Uh, otherwise over the last 25 years i think csj would have trained at least 1000 uh, 1000 grassroots lawyers many of whom are uh, public prosecutors or judges or uh, uh, senior lawyers now who are part of our network informal network and um, similarly paralegals who have been i don't know five paralegals would be much more in number Uh, of uh, our own volunteer base as well as other organizations paralegals whom we have trained so that would be a couple of thousands uh, talk to us a little more about your idea of a grassroots lawyer 
so in the context of CSJ, and I'm saying this is a very very CSJ specific uh, uh, definition that we have. Uh, we say that uh, uh, the person that we are talking of is essentially a person from the communities that we work with. Uh, that's first. Um, the person has to have uh, an experience of discrimination and an anger and a need to counter that discrimination that the person has faced. That is the second uh, thing that we look at. And the third thing that we look at is that uh, you have to be a multitasker. Uh, you have to have one foot in the court and one foot in the community. Um, that's the third thing that we talk of. And the fourth thing that we talk of is that you're not about individual one-to-one -one cases so much as you are about identifying systemic issues which are leading to a particular situation and wanting to change that. I think those are the four key principles on which our grassroots learning program uh, rests. And when you thought about, uh, even initially, when you thought about, you know, what a grassroots lawyer should be, did you have uh, models that you were working with? Were there people in other parts of the world who were implementing a similar uh, solution and you were, you know, you were inspired by it or you were, you know, trying to copy them or something like that? Was there something that you were working with? Um, India, definitely no. I'm 100% sure no. Uh, there were some experiences in South Africa that one had heard of, though one has never, uh, we have never visited uh, them, but uh, there were interesting experiments in South Africa that we knew of, uh, kind of a thing. But I think this is something that, the organization is something that has grown and evolved over the years with the, with the passion and the wisdom of the people who, who are part of the organization. I think it's, it's more uh, organic kind of growth that has happened. Tell us about, you know, something about your very first uh, set of projects, you know, where you started seeing some success and you were testing this particular model and you realized you had something good that you could work with and develop. Uh, the reason I'm not able to answer this is because we've never thought projects. So that's why it's becoming a little difficult to answer this. Uh, uh, so let, let, let me make an attempt. As I said, that our experiences led us to two tracks. One was the paralegal as the as a separate, distinct uh, cater, and the second was our, our grassroots lawyers uh, program. And uh, there have been yeah, our training has evolved over the years. What we have been able to achieve now is uh, what we call uh, an alternative legal education uh, paradigm, where we are looking at uh, combining hand heart. Um, uh, hand, heart, and head uh, together. I think uh, I think we've evolved in terms of our uh, issue specificities. We have evolved in terms of our uh, uh, the way we train. We have evolved in terms of uh, uh, our understanding. So, for example, if I tell you, if we have uh, if we have if we are looking at a particular context, I will be able to tell you that cases of this particular category will happen in this month. That's the level of uh, that's a level of understanding of an area that we have now. So, for example, uh, I think initially uh, when we uh, did not have that kind of an understanding, we would make mistakes like going to a Patel Vas and doing a, uh, doing a uh, awareness program on Atrocity Act and the, the person who went there actually got beaten up by the Patels. So, that was one example that one looked at. Uh, to now realizing that uh, the issue of witchcraft will be in the month of monsoon, the issues of domestic violence will be uh, much more when the sugarcane workers come back because they've left their families back and you know so that's the level of um, sophistication in terms of mapping the thematic, in terms of mapping the needs that the organization has. I think our ability to respond is uh, far uh, quicker. Uh, because we understand now that no matter what the situation, the principles are going to be one, two, three, four, five. So, for example, what the way we set up the entire COVID uh, lockdown response setup was so fast and quick. Uh, it wasn't like that when we dealt with the earthquake or when we de dealt with the riots. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know whether that answers your question or not. Let's uh, get a little deeper into the alternate legal education because that's something I'm very interested in. 
can you tell me the details of the the curriculum that you're trying to develop the philosophy driving the the you know the the differences from the or the normal legal curriculum um so what we believe is that the traditional legal education which is essentially 10 lectures 20 lectures but essentially passing of information from one mouth to another head uh without any context without any uh, input on uh, practice without any understanding of how it actually plays out uh is inadequate and uh, the principles that we have uh, evolved over the years and we have used this whether we are doing police training whether we are doing uh, school teachers training uh whether we are whichever be the sphere uh, where we are working but what we say is that it essentially has to have a heart head and um hand uh, combination um uh, what the way we go about is that we do what we call a competency mapping so what is this person going to be doing whether it's a school teacher or whether it's a police whether it is a lawyer whether it is a paralegal after going through this process of hand holding and input what is this person expected to be doing and what are the competencies that this person requires and then looking at where is this person at the moment now vis-a-vis those competencies and therefore what are the skills what are the attitudes what are the information gaps that we need to fill up so that is something that we try and achieve in the capacity building efforts that we uh, undertake in terms of duration it is it is very multiple factors depend uh, determine what kind of duration is most appropriate for what uh so that's not something that has a thumb rule you have to look at um, look at the level you have to look at the final uh, outcome that you want you have to look at your practical constraints and come up with something that will make sense so uh you know what what, what generally is the profile of the people to whom you're delivering this uh, alternate curriculum uh it varies it's it's from starting from our village volunteers paralegals to our own lawyers to lawyers of other organizations and campaigns uh that's one set of our people uh the second is ngo staff who's uh, interested in looking at uh, adapting or using law in whatever work that they are doing that's the second audience that we have uh the third audience that we have is law teachers who are teaching courses like law poverty and development and uh, similar courses that's the third category that we have uh the fourth category that we have is law students themselves both the the five year integrated ones as well as the three year ones where we have tie ups with colleges where we deliver uh, short courses 16 hour uh, courses uh, or even full uh, uh, full length courses and uh, then um, on invitation the police the judiciary uh, the school teachers that's the range that we cover and what's the profile of the people who are delivering this curriculum the teachers so uh, it is uh, people who have uh, been with the, so it could be our lawyers people who have been part of our grassroots lawyering uh, program uh who have experienced this methodology and then we work with them on how they can further transfer this uh further use this with other groups um uh, to their own uh, staff they could be people who some of our uh, trainers actually are 10th pass also but they have that rooting that understanding of law and its practicality and an understanding of the of the pedagogy uh, and uh, yeah it's largely the people in the organization uh i think one of the uh, you know uh, innovations that uh, you have been working with is in the area of uh, uh, communicating the law right uh, um, whether it's yeah. through posters whether it's through you know use of social innovative use of social media can you you know generally uh, explore that idea a little bit uh so uh, the technology based uh, uh, communication we are still struggling with we are learning but i think where we have done tremendously amazing work is in using cultural uh, media uh, so if every area has its own folk form and we have been able to adapt those folk forms to communicate message of awareness uh, that's been our strength we use uh, popular uh, events like odes or uh, uh melas where we know that people are going to gather on their own then we have used audio cassettes etc uh for communication uh we ran a program uh of community radio which was a very effective um, program 
uh, called Ranbre. They were uh, tribal people from uh, the community had been trained to be radio reporters. So that was again a very successful program. And uh, we've done radio programs. We have uh, we have made short films uh, which we use uh, for communication. Yeah. Uh, so can you talk to us about the um, you know the process behind that goes behind the you know the, the creation of these materials and how do you develop these materials? Uh, so I'll just take one practical example. I'm talking of a film uh, which is made on land rights for women. Now um, instead of making it what is the law on land rights for women, we looked at who are the key actors who influence. Uh, women getting land. So it's the woman herself, it is her parental family, it is her marital family, these are the key factors and then there are the government officials who are uh, who are at the second layer uh, involved. Uh, the film that we made uh, essentially looked at what are the factors that are, counter, that are counterproductive uh, and uh, instead of uh, instead of being um, instead of attacking that mindset, we started looking at, uh, so if a brother mines a daughter, uh, uh, if a brother mines her, his sister getting land rights, how do we tell the brother that it is in your interest that your sister has land rights? Those are, that's the messaging that we did. So looking at each uh, relationship, looking at the blocks that they will have towards the issue and having a message that tells them why you should need change your uh, attitude. And followed by what does the law says. Now, uh, the practical impact of uh, this was we were traveling in a bus and then two people uh, talking to each other saying I had come to the office here to get my wife's name registered uh, in the land records. And then we started talking saying uh, that's not a normal thing, why did you do? And then he had picked up, picked it up from the, from the film and he said that no, after I die, if my son doesn't uh, look after her well, I don't want her to suffer and that's the reason why we uh, did that. So clearly it has an impact. You are listening on the Nagrik podcast to Nupur Sinha, the executive director of the Center for Social Justice. Nagrik Open Civic Learning promotes the use of open educational resources for better civic participation. So if you visit nagriklearning.com, you can enroll for a course created by Oxfam India and the Center for Policy Research on community rights and forest governance. The course is made up of open learning materials. So not only are they free of cost, the videos, reading materials and tests are available under a Creative Commons license. This means that if you're a teacher who wants to use them for your online classes, you don't need our permission. Once again, that is nagriklearning.com. N-A-G-R-I-K learning.com. Now, back to Nupur Sinha, who will tell us how the network of grassroots lawyers responded to the Gujarat riots of 2002, which has been described as a pogrom by many scholars. According to official figures, the three-day period of rioting ended with 1,044 people dead. Other sources estimated the number of deaths as nearing or even exceeding 2,000 people. Uh, so when the riots happened, we were uh, more hopeful than we are now and uh, we went through the whole exercise of uh, what's the basic, getting FIRs registered, thinking that is actually going to have a, have an impact uh, and that, that, that that's going to be meaningful and that we are going to get, you know, get convictions. Uh, we realized that that's not possible. So very quickly, as soon as that understanding uh, came that you can't go too much on the criminal uh, side, we chose which are the ones where we want to, want, where we have a chance of success and then we said we are going to focus only on these and uh, however unfair it may seem, we will have to drop the others as far as criminal prosecution trial is concerned. Um, those cases that we took up then were a long haul in terms of witness preparation and uh, yeah, the entire case, all the cases that we did were, uh, were, were uh, took a lot of time and took a lot of uh, effort. Uh, so that was at one level. At uh, second level, we started again looking at the entitlements that were being announced and the gaps in that. For example, because people were people's bodies were burnt, the faces were not recognizable. Uh, now, uh, how do you uh, how do you get a death certificate? 
you know, so these are the practical realities that one has to deal with. And then, uh, so the first announcement of entitlement that was done was much lesser than the earthquake. We said, no, it has to be equal to earthquake. Uh, did a comparative of what are the different uh, entitlements uh, that are available in the country, what should Gujarat come up with. Uh, so that's the other track that we uh, took. Uh, then getting those entitlements uh, to individuals, um, till, so which is essentially following up till they get their uh, dues, assisting them in that uh, process. That was the third track, track that we uh, did. Uh, what was um, significant was that uh, being in the location where uh, the riots have taken place uh, was very important. And uh, because we had a physical presence, interventions became far more simpler, unlike, uh, unlike in Assam where we were outsiders and we just got somehow dragged into the process without knowing what we are getting into. And it was a very, very difficult uh, scene for us because we didn't know the local dynamics, we didn't know the local people, we didn't have local contacts and um, uh, yeah, we did, did whatever we could do but the two were completely different experiences. One, your own territory where you are there and another where uh, you have gone as an outsider trying to think that you will make a difference. Uh, but uh, I think that's being, so my um, challenge to many people who do these fact findings which then don't go beyond fact findings always is that if you are not in that location and if you're not going to see the case through till its end uh, don't uh, don't waste their time and don't waste your time uh, give me a sense of uh, you know the the amount of work you did in response to the gujarat riots how many trials were there how many witnesses in total there were five cases that we did uh, and those took our life. The rest, as I said, we uh, did not take, we assisted till the level of uh, filing of FIRs. Those I don't remember, I think 2193, I'm just speaking out of memory. I think 2193 uh, was the number of FIRs that we did. I think 3000 affidavits we did uh, for the Justice Nanavati Commission. We were hopeful that that will lead to something. We were never even... Those people were never even called for a for a hearing. That's besides the point. Uh, five cases that we did then landed in um, conviction, each one of them. But then I don't remember offhand the number of witnesses, etc. I only know that it was huge. And what is the work that you were, your lawyer network and your paralegal network uh, was doing at this time in relation to these cases or otherwise in relation to providing some kind of uh, rehabilitation? Uh, so there are multiple ways in which we have responded and there is one uh, which according to me is the ideal and I have always cherished that particular engagement uh, which we took up in Panchmahal uh, where there were multiple organizations working together. So Janvikas had an organization called Udan uh, which was looking at education, CSJ set up something called Janadhika which was looking at uh, legal intervention. Um, uh, Janvika, Basera was a livelihood program. Um, so, so, you know, we confused that whole system so much that they didn't know who's who, somebody who's attacking them, somebody who's working with them. But in short, we, um, this was a more holistic kind of a response where uh, there was a youth group support facilitation where we were getting them uh, to run libraries, looking at their livelihood options. Um, looking at uh, looking at conflict transformation using livelihood options so one track janadikar which was uh, looking at aggressive uh, aggressively targeting um, the violators uh, getting bails cancelled getting uh, uh, you, you know proceeding with the case uh, witness preparation etc etc there was another track which was looking at people from dalit Adivasi tribal, uh, Dalit Adivasi Muslim communities to work together at a common, uh, towards a common cause. So I think the second, first year of the first anniversary of the riots, VHP had taken out um, a rally celebrating the, the whatever, whatever they called it. And um, uh, in next two days, we had 1000 youth on the roads, which was unimaginable. And the system was totally, administration was system totally stuck that what has happened and where have these people come from. 
but basically looking at groups so we we insisted that our staff meetings would take place only in each other's houses because that's the level of uh, distancing that had happened people were not going to each other's houses uh, we set up uh, so basera looked at um, uh, livelihood options which would ensure hindu muslim um, uh, hindu muslim codependence so if if somebody is rearing the goat somebody is selling the goat and they are from different uh, communities uh, then we set up what we call khel uh, badal uh, game for change where we said you have to have a uh, hin if you are uh, if you have to have mixed cricket teams and if your uh, captain is a hindu your vice captain has to be a muslim and there has to be uh, a mixed team of hindu and muslim including girls cricket we started that happened for almost 5 years now on the one hand it was getting these people together on the other hand this is the same set of youth groups which were also being educated on uh, entitlements etc uh, number of cases that we were so basically saying your enemy is the state and the and hunger and uh, not each other uh, and i think those were very useful processes so this was one set of integrated kind of intervention that we did then there were individual cases which were Uh, not in our regular geographical uh, locations, but those we uh, followed up. Uh, wherever riots had happened in our individual geographical locations, it was facilitated initially filing of FIRs and subsequently facilitation of claims. So, uh, what are the widows' entitlements and listing of the widows and ensuring that they get those entitlements and the multiple packages that had been announced, ensuring that that was there because we realized that. such a big number of firs is not going to lead to any conviction anywhere and only in those cases where we are 100% sure that the witness will be able to withstand we went ahead with supporting the trial let's take one other thematic aspect uh, that you have been working on let's take uh, domestic violence uh, tell us about you know the strategy in terms of uh, responding to domestic violence on a systemic scale what do your lawyer network do what does a paralegal network do what are you doing in teaching one is that a big part of our workforce itself would be people who have faced violence or who have somebody close to the family who has been facing a violence i think that's uh, that's something that is uh, very much uh, there um the work starts with uh, awareness so multiple methods that i have talked of which are used uh, for uh, spreading awareness on um, on the laws about the domestic violence challenging the attitudes which uh, lead to to domestic violence uh, etc so that's the first level uh, of engagement that we have at the community we've had experiences where we have worked with the community punches asking them to legislate or you know form norms which uh, talk of widow remarriage or which say that no domestic violence no dowry etc etc so that's the first level as i said for us lawyers and paralegals are not distinct categories a good lawyer has to be a good paralegal so for me that category doesn't uh, exist it could be the lawyer or the paralegal who's engaging in these uh, awareness activities uh, once a is issue is reported supposing somebody is facing violence or supposing there there has been a dowry death uh then there would be a fact finding or if somebody has come with a complaint of domestic violence uh then we get deeper into that particular case now the issue of mentoring comes for example uh we had uh, one case uh which was not a clear cut kind of a case now there were two varied stands on how the case has to be handled now this gets discussed in what we call a center meeting it's a monthly meeting where we review all our cases so the cases reviewed from the perspective of gender patriarchy cases reviewed from the perspective of your counseling skills cases reviewed from the perspective of your application of law drafting all of that so that's where the mentoring aspect uh, comes in but using these instances or using these differences to sharpen your understanding your team's understanding um to come up with norms which should be applicable within the organization so that's the second uh, level of uh, work that happens uh, 
once a case comes we get the two parties to talk to each other if it's possible and uh, we have evolved what we call principles of um negotiation or terms and conditions on which you have to uh, mediate and that essentially says that the woman has to go back more empowered than what she came to you when she came to you so it could be that you have ensured that there is a big amount of money kept in her name or that the husband has written that i will not beat her again because then that becomes important that he has admitted in writing that i have been beating or it could be that we create a separate living place for her it could be whatever options that are possible in that and then if the conciliation also fails then we have no option but to go to the court in which case we file a uh, litigation now having done 50 60 70 of these cases you know that that the pwdva is not uh, being implemented so you start identifying what are the systemic blocks who needs to do what differently so this particular when pwdva had just come we what we filed about 100 cases we reviewed about uh, 100 cases and identified what are the systemic blocks that are there so it meant that protection officers have not been um, put in place it meant that the judiciary doesn't know uh, the provisions they kept making mistakes which were written in you know which whereas the law was clear in black and white but they kept making those mistakes so we went to the high court asking for issuance of a directive to the to the court saying these are the norms that you have to follow uh, police not helping so these were the issues that so then we went ahead and filed a public interest litigations requiring requesting for uh, implementation of pwdva uh, on the other hand uh, we were invited by the gender resource center to do the training once the protection officers had been appointed subsequent to our filing of the public interest litigation uh and then the of course the teachings that we do have uh, have this so uh, this is an example of uh, of an area where you have actually gone out and trained judges um yeah. can you can you just talk about your experiences of training um working with the uh, you know the uh, both the judiciary and with the police how, how has it been uh these training sessions and other areas of intervention with the police and the judiciary actually you working with the police and the judiciary before the 2002 happened after that they have blacklisted us despite recognizing that we are competent uh but i can speak from uh that um uh with the uh, with the police what we did was very interesting actually uh we there are five training academies police training academies in uh, gujarat and we asked the uh, asked the each of the training academies to nominate their teams who's going to be conducting uh, classes and worked on building a gender perspective with uh, them and how they are going to look at crpc with a gender lens or evidence act with a gender lens etc etc uh so that is one process that we did and then they in turn had to go back and conduct these uh, sessions in their own respective academies uh the uh, the other so that was one the other process that we did is that uh, we worked out with the sps specific uh, plans uh, for their respective district like in kach we had the hello sakhi program there's one sp who said matlab who kept saying women file false cases but he said i am willing to sit with down with you and review each and every file so all the files of crimes against women he called the people his um, staff and we reviewed because many of those cases had been actually filed by us they were rape cases they were uh, trafficking cases um, so then he uh, ensured that the investigation happens uh, properly so sometimes training doesn't help but these engagements are far more uh, useful Uh, i think with the judges we have not been lucky to have this kind of um, this kind of uh, opportunities we, what we have had is take this session here take that session here you know those kind of sporadic um, uh, sporadic engagements unlike the police with whom we had a very sustained uh, program i think in both the cases what we work on is uh, what does it mean to be a good judge and what does it mean to be a good पुलिसमैन एंड वी से कौन कौन ह्यूमन राइट्स की बात कर रहा है कौन जेंडर की बात कर रहा है हम तो कर ही नहीं रहे हम तो बोल रहे हैं सी आर पी सी में लिखा है दिस वॉट इज रिटन इन द सी आर पी सी सो अपीलिंग टू देयर सेंस ऑफ बींग अ प्रोफेशनल आई थिंक दैट इज वॉट मेक्स डिफरेंस रादर देन 
beating around the bush on patriarchy and gender and all that which doesn't enter their heads at all so you know we found uh, we found the judicial proto- protocol that we got uh, issued from from the registrar far more effective than 3 3 day orientations on gender because we say high court bol raha hai humne kaha bola hai sir okay so today if i go to the csgs website there are a number of areas in which uh, you know you are making uh, interventions including uh, from access to justice adivasi rights to you know urban marginalized communities women's rights etc how do you you know as part of the leadership of csgs right now how do you make uh, uh, decisions about priorities how do you decide what is important today and what is important what is not important uh so csj is essentially based on the principle where we say you build around the individual and uh the lawyers that we train essentially are people who we build around so if we you know other organizations they would do a uh, do a baseline and they would say this has more poverty or that has more number of incidents and all that for us it is very clear where do you have a person who has a passion and the need to change and then that person determines what is it that i'm going to work on and obviously if the person is in adivasi area then it is the issues of adivasi areas which get far more um, highlighted and our planning process is very very um, down up so uh, the last person in the organization gets to decide what they are going to do so that's how priorities are if there is an issue that somebody is passionate about then that issue is a priority tell me something about your leadership style uh, uh, in this regard so how often do you talk to you know as you said the the last person in the line how often do i talk to the last person in the line um i think csj is a very uh, uh, how to put it it's a very decentralized sizada i think it's a very devolved organization i think i ask the good questions but the planning is done by every unit Uh, which has its own leadership uh, we have uh, multiple ways in which people get to express their uh, leadership the moment we see that this person has a potential we try and uh, create an opportunity where that person's potential gets expressed so i think the typical um, and that's why most donors have problems with us because we are never able to produce an organogram uh but the typical organogram kind of our hierarchy does not exist uh, in csj but uh, there are issues that i am passionate on and those issues then i am linked to the last village um at time to time what i do is every year i take up one thematic that i um, that i am fully involved in because i need to understand how things work etc and uh, so that issue i am deeply in there could be other issues where i don't even have a supervisory uh, kind of a role but uh, csj is a multiple layered leadership uh, system where uh, hierarchies don't matter so much um so obviously there are uh, uh, you know people lower down the hierarchy in terms of leadership are making important decisions so what are the risks that they are taking of you know um suppose um you know something goes wrong on the basis of a decision that they have taken so what are the risks what are the rewards that they are you know considering the worst that can happen is that an intervention will not fructify and that is allowed you are allowed to make those mistakes in csg and the reward is that if you have a dream and you have tried to put that into practice and if that fructifies and there are others who join that dream then that's the biggest reward i mean for me what is the biggest reward today for me the biggest reward today is that my colleague was sitting in front of me just a few minutes back and she got the first call saying didi hum pahunch gaye isse bada aur kya chahiye that that's a that's a group that she has been tracking since i think second week who have now reached their home there's obviously leadership but there's also the mentorship aspect especially when it comes to you know your team they are probably coming face to face with the difficult aspects of life on a daily basis uh how do you help them handle these difficulties uh yeah i think our um, 
processes are designed in a manner where there's a lot of support that is uh, provided to young people who are new and uh, who are still learning. And uh, the way our uh, uh, review meetings are conducted, the way our trainings are conducted, uh, always, there's always space for, space for a lot of discussion and uh, reflection. Uh, additionally, when we are talking of our Young Lawyers program, we have three layers. We have always at any center uh, a very young lawyer, a mid-level lawyer and a senior lawyer. And we have access to multiple thematic experts. So uh, a young lawyer never files a vakalat nama individually. There will always be um, uh, two people who will sign the vakalat nama. So that if there are difficulties in the court, there is a mid-level person or a senior person who is available to help the person through that. So every case is prepared very uh, thoroughly and additionally um, the review meetings that we conduct look at strategies, look at the latest position in law, uh, so that is very much there and uh, there is a lot of personal growth issues that are uh, given value, the given space in the organization, I think that also is equally uh, important. Can you tell me what happens at uh, one of these review meetings for a particular case? Um, so review, uh, we have multiple types of review meetings. There's a regular center meeting, which is a monthly meeting where at the unit level, whatever is happening, each case is discussed th threadbare in terms of what was done, was it done properly or not? Uh, are there any perspective issues involved? Uh, uh, we bring in understanding of human rights, gender patriarchy into these discussions. What is the latest situation in law? Looking at drafting, is the drafting sharp enough? Uh, are there other remedies we need to look at? So that's at one level. Uh, then if all our units are reporting a similar kind of uh, challenge, say a particular provision not being understood well, then that becomes part of a collective learning process and we take it up there and there are designed exercises where we uh, find ways of communicating what is going wrong or what needs to be done differently. And uh, then there are uh, annual gatherings or there are other uh, reflective meetings where we uh, ask good questions to which help us understand and reflect what we are doing, why we are doing, uh, how we are doing and the larger context in which our intervention is placed, what is changing in the scenario, uh, those kind of things. So at these meetings when you are uh, tracking what is changing, are you able to show a uh, sense of optimism about the work that has happened in, that CSC has been involved in over the over many years. How have we been able to show the sense of optimism? Uh, the sense of optimism comes uh, from the fact that uh, uh, usually begin, we begin with celebrations. So our first part of any meeting would be what good has happened and that keeps everybody's spirit high. And uh, then we get into, okay, well, not everything is good and this is what is not in place and therefore let's talk about that. I think as a rule, we begin all our meetings with sharing of success stories. Uh, we practically live out of each other's houses. I think there's a informal uh, emotional support that is there. I think more than that, it is uh, the common passion because we fight like cats and dogs. But when it comes to a crisis, I mean... Just before this lockdown happened, we had had multiple discords amongst team members. And uh, uh, when this lockdown happened, I just held con calls and I said, look here, we, are, we have been fighting, but this is the need. And only if we all agree that this is the extent to which we are going to get involved, we, I take up this responsibility. They said, we will do it. And we've been doing it and we have not fought last two months. So I think that... Um, sense of purpose is uh, what uh, uh, what is very important i think there's a lot of engagement that we do in meaning making you know how is what we are doing making a difference uh, how is it matching my dreams and i think when when you feel that i have the freedom to do what i want to do in this place uh, i think that's the biggest um, biggest uh, encouragement or biggest positive factor that people must be finding here, I think. Um, finally, I'd like to conclude, um, you know, uh, with your comments on how it has been to work in a system that's, uh, you know, that has been fairly antagonistic, uh, uh, you know, to your activities, because uh, around the country, a lot of young lawyers are facing this problem of are trying to address this question of 
how to work in a legal system that's perhaps slowly turning authoritarian while you know you have been kind of working in such a system for a while now would you have any anything to tell them see i always say the um, there is the um, honey bee and there is the house fly and uh, the honey bee will always go search for a flower and go and sit on the flower and the house fly will always look for dirt and go and sit on the dirt i think our only option is to choose the flowers because what you focus on is what will grow so everybody know i don't have to talk about what is happening everybody knows it it's it's our day to day experience it's no point talking about that i just think it's important to recognize that so much good is happening and and focus on that so that more good happens i think that's been my attitude in general towards life and towards this also i don't know about you but that image of an army of grassroots lawyers moving like honeybees from flower to flower pollinating the justice system with their services has made me quite optimistic I am full of gratitude to Nupur Sinha and her team from whom I took her away while they were providing essential legal services during this pandemic. In the show notes of this episode and on Twitter and Instagram, we have posted some photographs that will give you a clearer idea of the day-to-day life of a grassroots lawyer at the Center for Social Justice. I hope you have learned something from this conversation about what it takes to run such a network. My name is Aju John and this was the Nagrik podcast. 